This podcast is brought to you by Reynolds & Reynolds, the industry leader in automotive technology. Learn how operating differently can help you overcome the pressures facing your dealership today at reyrey.com slash operate differently. That's R-E-Y-R-E-Y dot com slash operate dash differently. Welcome to Daily Drive for Thursday, June 29th, 2023. I'm Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News in the greater Toronto area. And I'm Kellen Walker in Seattle. Today on the show, Toyota sees a double-digit sales gain in May. Stellantis puts some U.S. plants in, quote, critical status ahead of UAW talks. And a new study says millions of EV chargers are needed by the end of the decade. Plus, Mark Wakefield of Alex Partners joins the show to talk about the firm's new report that predicts an inevitable decline on the horizon for cars powered by internal combustion engines. Call it ice melting because that's what you're going to start seeing <laughs> as, it, as it falls off in volume. Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. Toyota saw a 10% jump in global sales for May from a year earlier. The world's largest automaker benefited from growth at home and in China as a shortage of semiconductors and other parts eases. The company sold 838,000 vehicles globally last month, including its luxury car brand Lexus. That's compared with 761,000 vehicles in May 2022, when sales took a heavy hit from supply issues caused by the pandemic. In Japan, Toyota's sales jumped 35% to 117,000 in May, outpacing a 22% year-on-year rise in April. The company didn't break out its U.S. results. Edmunds projects that Toyota's second-quarter U.S. sales, set to be announced next week, rose 6.3%. That's the smallest gain among major automakers. Stellantis will require union employees to work overtime at two Michigan plants to boost Jeep SUV production. That's ahead of a potential strike after the current contract expires in September. The move affects UAW members at the Warren Truck Assembly and Jefferson North Factory, one in and one near Detroit. According to a document shared with Reuters, Stellantis told workers the plants will be in so-called critical status from July 5th through October 2nd. Under the current UAW contract, A plant in critical status can run up to seven days a week for a period of 90 days and require union employees to work more than nine hours of overtime. The Alliance for Automotive Innovation plans to tell the EPA that its proposal to significantly reduce vehicle emissions through the 2032 model year is, quote, neither reasonable nor achievable in the time frame provided. The Alliance, representing a broad swath of the U.S. auto industry, including most automakers, said the proposed rule is so stringent that it is a de facto battery electric vehicle mandate. That's according to a memo released Wednesday. In April, the EPA unveiled its strictest ever vehicle pollution standards for cars and light trucks for the 2027 to 2032 model years. They require an average of 13% emission reductions each year fleet-wide and a 56% reduction in average emission target levels from the 2026 model year. If finalized, the proposed standards could mean EVs would make up more than half of new vehicle sales by the 2030 model year and two-thirds by 2032. The public comment period for the proposal closes July 5th. And the U.S. will need 28 million charging ports by 2030 to support a scenario where 33 million electric vehicles are on the road. 
That's according to a federal study released this week by the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. The new analysis sought to quantify the estimated number, type, and location of EV chargers needed across the country to support a rapid adoption of light-duty EVs by the end of the decade. The study says to achieve that scenario, a cumulative public and private capital investment of $53 billion to $127 billion in charging infrastructure will be needed by 2030. That includes private residential charging. For public charges only, the report estimates an investment of $31 billion to $55 billion. And those are today's headlines. Jamie, with Stellantis requiring union employees to work mandatory overtime in two Michigan plants, do you think this is something that will trigger union leaders to want to push for a possible strike sooner than later? You know, it's it's interesting to think through the game theory of it. I would suspect that invoking a clause like that could um, irritate some union members who feel like their summer is being trampled upon. Uh, so that could make them a little more eager to strike or to stay out on strike longer. Really, the the net effect economically should be to bolster both sides' ability to withstand a long strike. Probably isn't really what Stellantis wants, but they want to make sure they have enough Jeeps for their dealers to supply customers, even if there is a long strike. The company is so dependent on Jeep output and Jeep sales. But at the same time, it also should pad the savings accounts of these union members, allowing them to stay on strike longer. So it will be really interesting to see how this all plays out. Yeah, it's very interesting. Coming up, how quickly will EVs replace ICE vehicles in new car sales? Mark Wakefield of Alex Partners joins us next on Daily Drive. Economic uncertainty, vehicle affordability, and ever-increasing customer expectations are threatening the profitability and efficiency gains you've made over the last couple of years. You may be finding the strategies you've used to improve performance in the past just aren't as effective as they once were. You offer online options so customers can begin the buying process remotely, but your salespeople have to rebuild the deal or correct it during the in-store appointment. You ask your advisors to be proactive about calling customers to get work approved, but still wind up with occupied bays and stalled jobs when the customer doesn't answer the phone. Your business office clerks are trying to process deal jackets faster, but funding still takes weeks. The strategies you've used to improve performance in the past just aren't as effective as they once were. Getting better at outdated and inefficient processes will only get you so far. Let's face it, Netflix isn't a household name because they got really good at mailing DVDs. And nearly half of Apple's revenue comes from the iPhone, not from the computers the company was founded on. These companies evolved as new challenges presented themselves instead of sticking with the status quo. It's time for a mindset shift. It's time to operate differently. Finding new and innovative ways to operate is essential to effectively managing the pressures facing your dealership. Visit rayray.com slash operate differently to get started. That's R-E-Y-R-E-Y dot com slash operate dash differently. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Kellen Walker. Pent-up demand may buoy internal combustion engine vehicle sales through 2024, but an inevitable decline is on the horizon. That's according to consulting firm Alex Partners' annual Global Automotive Outlook. As they navigate the electric vehicle transition, automakers also continue to contend with material and labor costs, supply constraints, and other inflation. To add to the challenge for Western automakers, Chinese EV brands are dominating domestically and may become much more influential players in the global market in the next three to five years. 
To get more detail on the findings, I caught up with Mark Wakefield, who leads the automotive practice in the Americas and co-leads the global automotive and industrials practice at Alex Partners. I reached him at his office near Detroit. Mark Wakefield, welcome back to Daily Drive. Glad to be back. Mark, you presented your Alex Partners annual automotive outlook this week, and a couple of things really stood out to me. The The first was the shift from vehicles primarily powered by you know, gasoline burning, internal combustion engines to EVs. We see some EV growth in the U.S., which is lagging behind Europe and China, but we still see strong sales of you know gasoline burning or ICE vehicles you know, for now when there's so much pent-up demand. But your forecasts really lay bare the coming erosion in the ICE market share. What, what do you see going on? Well, we're exiting this early adopter phase of the S-curve and getting into the more mass market. China, you know, well ahead, Europe sort of in the middle, and the U.S. and North America a little more behind. But still really getting into that, that mode where you're really selling to the mass market in volume. And that changes the game quite a bit. It changes the game from an option to a necessity. And it also changes the dynamics of competition from first in market and I've got one to it's got to be better. So we're kind of seeing an increase in ICE vehicle sales now, probably just because of the pent up demand after what people couldn't buy during the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. It's and we're talking about pretty marginal ones in, in Europe and China, and it's, I guess more of an increase in the U.S., but that's kind of a pent-up demand that we see you know, this year, the next two years, and then you know we call it ice melting because that's what you're going to start seeing <laughs> as, it, as it falls off in volume. I mean, in share, it's, it'll fall off each year. But when you think about volumes that matter more to, say, a manufacturer, we've got this sort of three-year plateauing before it really starts to fall off in the second half of the decade. I'm wondering what all that means for suppliers. You know, the return to full production seems like it should normalize profits compared with the pandemic, better for suppliers and less so for the automakers and dealers. Um, But with the massive shift to EVs, it seems like there may be little respite for suppliers, uh, especially those tied to traditional powertrains, but even for the EV-focused ones. They might have a lot of growth ahead, but also a lot of uh, cost squeeze, squeezing and pressures still from, from their customers. Yeah, the, the tailwind of better volumes and more stable volumes is real and is important for the suppliers and is really going to be the prime driver of their profitability in the near term compared to the, the automakers that are seeing pricing power erode to a degree. And the, the sort of getting out of this mode where it's supply constrained and um, the consumer has to pay whatever they ask for because they, they can't find one. You know, we're in this sort of equilibrium. It's growing equilibrium of supply and demand right now. And by the end of 2024, should be well clear of that, uh, at least from a, a semiconductor perspective, if not from a labor perspective. But that means that the automaker's profitability is likely going to fall. And that means that they will likely put pressure on the supply base, as well as this idea of getting into a more volume segments of the the EV space. It's going to matter more, the cost that you're delivering against versus can you support it. The volumes are quite tricky because the volumes 
per platform of EV are less than half of what an ICE is now, even with very few platforms out there. And that really doesn't get too much better until the end of the decade. And so the profitability per program is, is a challenge because of that spreading of fixed costs. And it's also pretty tough to call the winners and losers as a supplier and say, which ones do I believe will sell this many and which ones would I be stranding capacity for? And you know, in some situations, like in batteries or some other key elements, there's more of an open discussion, I would say, with, with supply between suppliers and automakers about how much capacity to put in when. But for, for other parts that are you know, getting less attention, it's one of these challenges of a supply base is to figure out do I really want to, to put this much capacity and reserve this much capacity and invest this much? Um, or do I need some better assurances from the automaker? Or do I just simply want to price it to the level that undercuts that um, assumptions that I'm being given? And those are very tough. And then you know, there's a bit of game theory there where if you, uh, if you say yes and someone else says, um, says no, uh, as in you say Yes, and you're contributing. Well, you might have won it, but you also might have stepped into something that that isn't very sure. So there's there is a lot there to unpack around how a supplier tackles the the EV space and how they do it to in areas where their competencies match and where they've got really something to give. And then the sort of longer term risk is: Am I going as a supplier? Am I going into a space where the automakers are likely going to insource? eventually, maybe now or maybe eventually, as they try to replace the 40% of a powertrain man hours that doesn't exist in putting together a, an electric vehicle compared to a gas powered vehicle. We've already seen lots of discussions on how to maintain employment at the automakers. And if there's less parts to, to be made, then that means insourcing. I've been struggling through the pandemic and the, I guess we're maybe in a, a rec the recovery period that the, the data doesn't reflect demand or, you know, it's a, <laughs> volumes don't reflect demand the way they used to when supply was sort of infinite. There's been so much turbulence, money supply and chip supply and labor supply. Can you talk a little about how you craft your projections? I know like you have some economic modeling, but also a lot of really uh, first-hand insights from your clients, right? Sure. I mean, we participate across the industry and in the electronics industry. So we have probably a better knowledge than, than most who are just sort of momentum forecasting. And with the, the semiconductor piece, we've been sort of at the heart of that. It's stabilizing much more. We're now seeing allocations come through that were put in, that they were pulled back, right? And then there was none available. So they had to get put back in. We're starting to see those come back. Actually, seeing efficiencies also put into the uh, the semiconductor space, where it's it's probably been about ten percent this last year of just improvement on on efficiencies, not just allocations. And then we got new plants coming, you know, in twenty twenty four. That'll be online more fully by twenty twenty five, more for the the lower nanometer wavelength. But that allows consumer electronics that are more profitable to go into that volume, which exposes volume for the the more uh, cheap and cheerful automotive uh, semiconductors, as well as, of course, the moves to system of chip, the moves to below 40 nanometer semiconductors as well. And so 
when we look at the capacities, we look at the allocations, and we look at the competing segments, we see a lot of growth in semiconductor supply that gets us into that unconstrained environment going into 2025. And that's in the face of more than double the amount of semiconductors on a BEV versus on an ICE vehicle, which is sort of a, a counterbalancing factor in there. The nice thing for the semis is that those are generally more profitable than the, the ones on the ICE. So they're a little more interested in, in allocating those wafers and test uh, capacity to it. So we, we have that sort of bottoms up look, particularly at labor and particularly at semiconductors. We're a little less worried about battery material supply. It doesn't mean the price won't bounce up and down, but less worried about pure availability of that. And then looking at demand and looking at each region, each country, each major country at least, assume your audience is a little more interested in the US. Yes, we do have pretty robust economic model, but the economic model allows for changes in variables and one-time pieces. So what's important now is we have things like the used market that in terms of its comparative to the new, that sort of three-year-old type of vehicle, it's very dry. The, The pipe is very dry. So the used vehicles, while the prices come down a bit, we don't see it coming down to the pre-pandemic levels, even at the you know, Mannheim type index. You see it staying at that, that elevated level for quite some time because there just isn't a used supply of recently owned vehicles. And that's very supportive for new vehicles. Uh, and so people make a big fuss about, rightly so, the, the affordability of the vehicle and the interest rates but the term is still extending and the, uh, the use supply, the comparative basically the easiest um, substitute for a new vehicle is, is in short supply and is very, very expensive. Before I let you go, uh, I definitely need to ask you a little more about uh, China. Uh, you raised, you and your colleague raised some concerns uh, about how its local automakers are, correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but uh, that they're connecting with younger consumers in ways that raise serious questions about how the incumbent automakers spend their money. What's the big risk? Well, the big risk is that you rely on the regulatory environments to protect the U.S. market. You know, if you think of you're a, a medium-sized fish playing in a pond and there are sharks fighting with each other in China in a big ocean of China, you know, if those sharks come into the pond, it's going to be trouble. Now, there's... Something you can do about that, though, beyond the regulatory piece, is to learn the lessons of what succeeded in China, particularly around the electric vehicle space, because the, the domestic Chinese automakers have just dominated the domestic electron, uh, electric vehicle space. And of course, they do have a helpful hand from the Chinese government and from incentives, but they're doing things different that those lessons, that's almost like a laboratory for what a future OEM could really look like. And there's been great attention paid to Tesla and the innovations Tesla's done, the good ones and the bad ones, but mostly the good ones, and trying to emulate some of the things that that have sort of pushed the traditional automakers off of neutral and off of history, historical practices. But there's even much more to be done when you look at successes in, in China in electric vehicles. There's an aspect of engaging with customers on a direct one to one manner on creating an actual environment and a, an ecosystem where customers want to engage, it's easy to engage, 
And it's the easiest thing is to engage through the app to the automaker. And that's a painless and clear experience. You're seeing people go beyond what Tesla has. You look at the Neo examples and others. It's also not just in the bottom end of the range. It's also in the, the higher end premium range. And so that that's, of course, aided by having a more direct consumer model and not having some of the in-betweens and go-betweens. That is something to get worked out, certainly in the U.S. There is, you know, three to five years before you would see any real wave of Chinese product in the U.S. And that's enough time to address it. But the way to address it is so fundamental that it's going to be difficult seeing automakers trying to change their focus on all attributes and you know, ever better in every element to being more new tech driven and differentiating on consumer technology, on safety technology, and taking some risks, taking some risks by developing to a price and a time instead of to a standard and developing really what customers care about less than what the chief engineer cares about, what the marketing team cares about. A lot of changes, a lot of big shifts. Mark Wakefield, global co-leader of the automotive and industrial practice at Alex Partners. Mark, thanks again for joining me today. Thanks, Jamie. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. And I'm Kellen Walker. Thanks to Automotive News coordinating producer Jake Neer, as well as our own Audrey LaForest and Abby Goham for their reporting for today's podcast. You can get the latest news on electrification, manufacturing, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. Come back tomorrow for a look at a docu-series that focuses on the people inside the auto dealership. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode.